if it falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in our country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of British fair play, so be it. I am ready for the fight. The fight against falsehood and those who peddle it. My fight begins today. April the 10th, 1995, words spoken by Jonathan Aitken, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, member of the Conservative Cabinet, tipped for the highest office as he announced that he was suing the Guardian newspaper for libel. Four years later, June the 8th, 1999, Jonathan Aitken was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment at the Old Bailey, having pleaded guilty to charges of perjury and attempting to pervert the course of justice. As well as a prison sentence, a glittering career lay in ruins, and he was bankrupted. The newspaper in question, The Guardian, in its headline, crowed triumphantly, he lied and lied and lied. A more balanced view is expressed by Joshua Rosenberg of the BBC when he said, what started as a little lie snowballed into a criminal lie. And this story is a clear illustration of what it means to break the ninth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 verse 16 says, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. The literal translation is, You shall not answer your neighbour as a lying witness. And the narrow scope of the commandment is to some kind of legal process. That was very necessary in those days where you were guilty until proved innocent and where justice could be abused by the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor and the weak. However, this ninth commandment that we look at together this morning has a much broader application. Our former pastor Derek Pram in his helpful book Bible Answers defines the ninth commandment as follows. The ninth commandment forbids in principle all truth and falsehood and in particular perjury and proclaims the necessity of truthfulness of speech. And by that definition I want to ask how many of us could say hand on heart we have always told the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It's easy to sneer at politicians when they use spin to twist the truth. But how many of us have done something similar? Of course, we don't say that we're liars. We just say, well, I was a bit economical with the truth. Or we put what we say into a little box and we call them white lies. And the reality, however, in our society today and in our lives is that truth is being eroded by lies as surely as teeth are eroded by sugar. Hence my unoriginal and a bit cringy title this morning I've chosen Addressing Truth Decay and you'll find that in Exodus 20 verse 16 now in choosing this title I want to focus not only on the problem but also how we can deal with it 
And I want to put it in its broadest context. I want to look at three different themes related to three different passages of Scripture. So try and stay with me as we try and follow through before we come to the Lord's table this morning. The first theme is this, truth and lies. The fact that you can be found guilty of perjury, of giving false testimony in court, while under oath, assumes that categories such as false and true exist. Jonathan Aitken claimed that the Belfry's stay at the Ritz Hotel in Paris was paid for by his wife. Evidence was brought forward to show that she was actually in Switzerland at the time, not in Paris. So what he said was proved to be false. He was found guilty of perjury. However, though that may seem obvious to us, the existence of categories of absolute truth and falsehood is increasingly being challenged today. I read a story, uh, it claimed to be true and it sounded apocryphal to me, but a story a few years ago of a student who took issue with his tutor about a mark he got for a paper that he presented. He did an exam and he got a fail. So he went to the tutor and the tutor and said to the tutor, you failed me in this exam and I'm very upset about it. After all, it's only your opinion, and my opinion is that it was a good paper and I should have passed. None of the students here would do this, of course. Right? Especially as in this case, the exam was maths. <laughs> now, while few of us would dispute that 2 plus 2 equals 4, many people are not so sure about moral categories of true and false, right and wrong. And, and they even say, why is lying such a bad thing? In fact, I discovered on the internet that there's a contest held in November every year to find the biggest liar in the world. To the person deemed worthy of following in the footsteps of a Cumbrian politician called Will Whitson, who it says was famous for his tall stories. That's another euphemism for lying, by the way. Now, if what is right and wrong, true and false, is defined and decided by society, then frankly we're all in trouble. History is anything to go by. But the laws of our land were, and still largely are, those being eroded away, are based on these ten commandments in the book of Exodus, on a Judeo-Christian heritage on which our society has stood for centuries. And the ten commandments are words which are given by God. And they define truth by what he says is true, as opposed to what he says is false. They define, in fact, by his own character. Uh, that is why I chose that we began with those words of Moses from uh, Deuteronomy 32, when Moses praises God as the God of truth. He is the rock, his works are perfect, all his ways are just, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The authorised version of the Bible translates a faithful God, literally, which it is in Hebrew, as a God of truth. The two ideas are closely related. And this has important implications if you're dealing with God. The Illustrated Bible Dictionary says, The God of the Bible is thus far removed from the capricious pagan deities. He is true, that is consistent, both in his loving care for his children and his implacable hostility against sin. That means that when you come to God, you know he's being totally consistent. 
sometimes the best of us when we're parents we're sometimes inconsistent with our children we, we, we say something is wrong and something is right and then a few months later we forget exactly and the children always remind us hang on you said that before you've changed your mind there's a great example of this a, a wonderful story in the Old Testament uh, you remember when the people of Israel were passing from Egypt to Canaan there's this huge host of people some people think there are about a million of them and, and naturally as they passed through the surrounding nations got very alarmed by this and, and one of the kings of one of the nations a man named Balak who was the king of the nation of Moab was so upset by this that he hired a prophet called Balaam and he said to Balaam right, here's a bag of gold you see those people you go and stand on top of the mountain and when they come past I want you to put a curse on them and so Balaam the prophet took the bag of gold and he went on top of the mountain and he opened his mouth to give a curse and then he realised he couldn't do it so he pronounced a blessing on these people now you can imagine King Balak was not too impressed by this and said hang on I, I, I employed you to put a curse on these people and, and, and Balaam said I'm sorry he said I can't do it he said why not wonderful words Numbers 23 19 he said well he said, you see, he said, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? It's saying, God has promised to bless the people of Israel and he won't change his mind. Why? Because he's totally consistent. His favours don't go to the highest bidder. Now, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it, really, to think that God always deals consistently with us absolutely in keeping with his character and you think that that being the case we'd all be very pleased about it the reality is the sad reality is that most of us don't think God is worth trusting and you need to go right back here's the first passage of scripture you need to go right back to the first book of the Bible the book of Genesis it's God who creates the world and everything in it. it's good he puts the man and woman in there and he says you're free to do everything, he says, but there's one negative prohibition, which is, you mustn't eat of this particular tree, because if you do, you'll die. This is what will happen, this is true, this is false, this is right, this is wrong. Notice tragically what happens, if you've got the Bible, just turn back, you should know the story well, but if you don't, it's Genesis 3, right, the first book in the Bible, page 5. Genesis 3 verse 1 the devil in the form of the servant the tempter appears to the man and the woman to the woman first of all now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden well he didn't say that did he he said you can eat all of them the woman said we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden but God said he did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden you must not touch it or you will die you will not surely die the serpent said to the woman that's wrong for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open you will be like God knowing good and evil when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and the rest as they say is history they were taken in by the lie the devil tempted them to doubt God's goodness 
and then to disobey God's command. And the consequences of this that we inherit are a broken relationship with God and broken untrustworthy relationships with one another. And these Ten Commandments that we've been looking at deal with that whole issue. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with that broken relationship with God. The final six deal with that broken relationship with other people. And time and again, human beings have broken God's commandments. We have preferred the lie to the truth. Now this works in every dynamic of every temptation. You just read what the Bible says of anything. And your conscience says, that is wrong. But another voice says, well maybe it's not wrong after all. Maybe you're missing out if you don't do that. Why don't you just try it and see? And we're taken in by the light. Why? Because we don't trust God as a God of truth. And so the consequence then is that we lie to one another. I simply tell you, I, first of all, as a pastor, I've had people look me right in the eye and tell me an absolute lie and swear that it's true. I don't condemn them for one reason because I know my own heart. David quoted those verses from Jeremiah. Self-deception. The heart is deceitful and above cure. Who can understand it? Now this is the bad news that you need to face up to when we come to this subject of truth and telling the truth. Truth and lies. And it could have been even worse. God could have just left us to the consequence of doing our own thing, going our own way, living with the consequences without any knowledge of the truth. But the story of the rest of the Bible, if you read on simply from Genesis right through the Bible, the story of the Bible in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is that God again and again reveals himself consistently in his character as a God of truth. A God who can be trusted. A faithful God. That's why at the end of his career, Moses could sing this song. A God of truth. Without injustice. Good, upright, you see. Yet again and again, the history shows that people don't trust God. We prefer the lie to the truth. But the greatest news of all, the reason why we're here this morning, and in a moment we'll come around this table, is because God had a better plan in place. In fact, we don't have time to look at it. But even on that dark day in Eden, when our first parents disobeyed God, God already had a plan in place, which he announced to them with the judgment that followed. And that plan came to fulfilment in the coming to earth of Jesus, the Son of God. So let's move to a second theme now. Truth and lies. Here's the second theme. Truth and liberty. What is God really like? Well, the Old Testament describes his character as he revealed himself to people. But the full picture of what God is like is seen in Jesus Christ. I think there's a program on tonight when Professor Robert Winston is talking about who God is and what God is like. From what I read of the reviews, I think you probably better stick into medicine and other things. But anyway, um, he's going to look at all the different viewpoints of what people think God is like from all the different religions and traditions. The Christian simply says, based on God's word, the God of truth, that God is revealed most perfectly and fully in the person of his son, Jesus. And the record is in the scriptures, the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. The Apostle John, writing his gospel right at the beginning, says, we people, we who saw him, he says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. What's he like? He's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. In perfect balance, Jesus reveals God's truth 
and God's grace. And so he can say of himself, either he's the most arrogant person in the world, or what he says is true. He says, I'm the true light. I'm the true vine. I'm the true and living way to God. Now the litmus test, therefore, is faced with who Jesus is, what is our response? We either accept him as the truth, or we say he's a liar. Really, there is no middle ground, and that's why I read that passage in John chapter 8. I often think people who say, well, I admire Jesus, a great religious teacher. Sometimes say, turn them to a passage like John 8. Here's Jesus having a debate with religious leaders. And he says, you're, you're liars. And you follow your father, the devil, who's the father of lies. This is not good dialogue. <laughs> and they say, who do you think you are? He says, before Abraham was, I am. And the person of Jesus is absolutely, it's a kind of black and white response. You can't muddle along in the middle and say, well, well I think he was a great religious teacher. He was either the truth, or he was a liar. And the important thing is how we respond to the truth, how they responded to the truth. Jesus says there's only two options. You either hold on to my teaching, which is true, or you reject my teaching as a lie. And Jesus says, if you hold on to my teaching, you'll be set free. Liberty. If you reject my teaching, you'll remain as slaves of sin, enslaved by your sinful behavior. For whom the sin sets free is free indeed. Now these religious leaders are mortally offended by this. This is our religious pedigree, so we've never been slaves of anybody. But Jesus tells them the slavery he's speaking about is the slavery to sin. He has come to set people free from their bondage to sin. At Christmas time we celebrate the birth, good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David. What? A saviour. Who is Christ the Lord? You'll call his name Jesus, said the angel. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sin. That's what he came for. But if we refuse to believe him, we remain in the dark. We listen instead to the devil who speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. He said to Pilate, everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me, John 18:37. Pilate famously asked, what is truth? He failed to recognize that the one who stood before him is the truth. Instead he tried to wash his hands of the responsibility for Jesus' death. But Jesus took the responsibility for our sin by dying in our place on the cross. Now the question for each one of us here this morning as we come to this issue of truth is, the crucial issue is my response to Jesus. Am I following the claims of Jesus? Have I embraced him who is the truth, received him and his truth? Or have I rejected him in favour of the lie? If so, I am still enslaved in my sin. And I will continue to sin in every way, not least in breaking the, breaking the ninth commandment and lying to other people. Remember what Jesus said before he left heaven. He said, I'm going away and I'll send to you someone like me. He's the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit shows us our need of a saviour points us to the one who is the truth. And 
when that happens, we have a changed attitude to God's commands. We don't grumble against them and say, oh dear, these Ten Commandments and the things the Bible says and Jesus said, they're so hard and I really don't like them. And John says, in I think it's his first letter, he says, his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. So this is the best thing. I trust him. So now we turn to a third and final thing. As we put the truth into practice. Truth and lies. Truth and liberty. Finally, truth and love. And now we need to go right towards the end of the New Testament to how this is put into practice. In his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul reminds him that one of the marks of being a follower of Christ, one of the marks of spiritual maturity, is that we speak the truth in love to one another. Just as Jesus balanced this wonderful balance of grace and truth, truth and love, so Christians in a Christian family should exhibit the same balance, speaking the truth to one another in love. Ephesians 4 verse 15. Now, the difficulty is keeping the balance. And we tend to swing from one pole to the other. There are those who are eager to speak the truth and to put other people right. And sometimes they may be right about the thing to try to put people right on, but they're wrong about the way they do it because there is no love in it. There is truth without love. And, and you can win the argument but lose a brother or sister in a relationship. But there is an opposite danger we must avoid as well. And I believe it's increasingly in our society becoming harder and harder to do this. And that is love without truth. In a world where truth is relative, nobody wants to say anything is wrong. Especially about anybody else. So if someone does something wrong, they say, well, it's not my business. Supposing your child, those of you who have small children, supposing your child is about to put his hand in an electric plug, his fingers. Would you step back and say, oh, it's not in my business. No, you, you desperately run across and pull him away. And if necessary, if he kept doing it, you might use stronger discipline to say, what are you doing? It's going to hurt you, it's really wrong. Now within the Christian family that we belong to, that is in the local church to which each of us should belong, that is the place where we look out for one another. Where we speak the truth in love to one another. The context is the local church. So in the next verses in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, each of you must put off, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. Why? Because we're all members of the one body. We're all affected. We're interconnected with one another. We're responsible for one another and one of the signs of our love is that we speak the truth in love. Our motive being the good of the person to whom we speak. Now sometimes we may get it wrong. We may say to someone, I think what you're doing is wrong and the person says, well actually, you've misunderstood this. But better that than to have no one who bothers or cares about you. Can I say, if that happens to you, it does happen sometimes in church life, if it happens to you, just explain it, but thank the person that they cared enough to say anything about it, that they're concerned for you. You can only do this within a relationship of love. Now, where that is not the case, then we need to keep quiet. You need to speak up or shut up, because the tongue 
is a most potent weapon. James reminds us in the New Testament, in his little letter, that it can inflict enormous damage on people. In his book 10 on J. John, the one I've recommended several times, comments, our use and abuse of the tongue affects our relationship with others. Lies are not simply wrong, lies hurt people. So what are the things you shouldn't say? Well, slander is out. Speak to someone, not about someone. Gossip is out. Here's a good definition of gossip. I heard it some years ago, it stuck in my mind. I've not always followed it well, I must say, but I try to remember it. It is gossip if you are not part of the problem or part of the solution. Think about that for a moment. It is gossip if you're not part of the problem or part of the solution. Avoid flattery. I well remember Howard Hendricks when he visited uh, the chapel a few years ago, a great American pastor and teacher. I think someone welcomed him and said a few kind words about him and he said, thank you very much. Flattery is like perfume. Smell it, don't swallow it. <laughs> and like God, we should be true to our word. No false promises. That is why Jesus said of his followers, listen, don't start taking oaths, you know, I swear to tell the truth. It doesn't mean you don't do that in court, but he says, you shouldn't need to make a special comment about, you know, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, but the truth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be consistent. It shouldn't make any difference whether I'm speaking to you face to face or speaking to you in court. Tell the truth. Above all, think before you speak. Uh, J. John gives a helpful acrostic for the word Think, T-H-I-N-K. T, is it true? H, will it help? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? We may not always get it right and sometimes we need to go and say so and put things right and apologise. But that doesn't mean we withdraw into this private world of it's none of my business. If we are part of a Christian body, a body of love and care, we are responsible for one another to speak the truth in love. So, Ephesians 4 finishes. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Read and mark and inwardly digest those words. And when you live in that kind of community, it is a community of love to which people are attracted. Because people genuinely care for one another, a community of integrity where we can trust one another and speak the truth in love. Almost finished. Let me say something in conclusion from where I began. I began with the story of Jonathan Aitken's conviction and imprisonment for perjury. Uh, the title of his book that he wrote about this, and it's well worth reading, explains why he fell from grace. It's called Pride and Perjury. His pride was his downfall, but his humbling was his salvation, for he came to Christ through this experience. A remarkable way. And it began for him, as it must for us, when he admitted his guilt. Here's what he says in the book. I've learned my lesson. I hope never to tell any lies again. Sometimes you become a prisoner of your own lie. Ultimately, I have no excuses. And when you come for the first time to Christ, or subsequently when you've sinned, we come with assurance that God is a faithful God, and he's made a way, a consistent way, by which we may be forgiven, 
which does not ruin his justice. Why? Because Christ the just died in our place. So God with absolute justice can forgive us because of Christ and because of his great love that he has shown to us. So as we come around in a moment to the Lord's table, let me conclude with some verses to reflect on from the first letter written by John who was the apostle of love. It's about confession and cleansing. Very familiar verses if you've been around church, but notice the context again. If we claim this morning to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and what? The truth is not in us. Why? Because the truth says we all have sinned. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, God of truth, justice, he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word, his word of truth, has no place in our lives. Let's just pray for a moment together.